Welcome to Brandon Avat. Uh, today we have an absolutely delightful guest. I'm so excited about this. We have Peg Tittle, who is the author of What If Collected Thought Experiments in Philosophy, published by Rutledge. Um, and, you know, for those of you that have been watching the show for a while, this is our bread and butter. We love talking about thought experiments, and we're going to be talking about uh, some of our absolute favorites today with Peg. So, Peg, would you like to start with one? Well, yeah, sure. Um, Nagel's Bat um, is one of my favorites, um, and it has recently become one of my even more favorites because I see a lot of uh, application to the current debate on gender identity. Nagel says, I assume we all believe that bats have experience. After all, they are mammals, and there is no more doubt that they have experience than that mice or pigeons or whales have experience. Now, we know that most bats perceive the external world primarily by sonar or echolation, detecting the reflections from objects within range of their own rapid, subtly modulated high-frequency shrieks. Their brains are designed to correlate the outgoing impulses with the subsequent echoes, and the information thus acquired enables bats to make precise discriminations of distance, size, shape, motion, and texture comparable to those we make by vision. But I want to know, says Nagel, what it is like for a bat to be a bat. What he's asking is not for us to imagine what it would be like for us to be a bat, because he doesn't think there's any analogs in our personal experience. He's intrigued by what is it like for the bat to be a bat. To be a bat for the bat is exactly like it is to be a human for a human. Um, so of course now we wonder, well, what's the implication of that for empathy? Um, is our imagination limited by similarity? Uh, can we never imagine something totally different? Uh, I amused myself in high school trying to imagine the color Prilony and uh, obviously never could. You know, I got close by, by thinking, well, it's kind of like fuchsia or something of the sort. But, you know, if there is no similarity, um, you know, then what, how, how can we imagine something that is just so completely beyond our imagination? Since we can't know the experience, the nature of others' experience, can we at least know that they have them? Um, and there's a lot of, of course, question in the field of robot rights. Well, even if we decide these properties, blah, 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 are requisite for rights bearers, how can we ever know for sure that robots have those properties? You know, which is the same as Nagel's question. Um, how do we know what, what the nature of a bat's experience is? It's a really great thought experiment. Uh, it's my favorite as well of of all thought experiments. Um, oh, and it's, yeah, yeah, it's it's great because um, it really challenges our brains in a way that I haven't felt challenged by any other thought experiment quite as as far. I haven't been pushed or stretched as far. I mean, what is it like to be a bat to see the world through echo sonar? And the implications of that, the fact that we can't push our brains that far, or at least not easily, uh, are wide reaching. And you're going to discuss some of those implications. Um, but one of them, which is fascinating to me, is that you cannot describe someone's experience objectively and capture it entirely. Mm -hmm. And and that's, that's massively important. Um, yeah. And uh, there's a few questions that arise. So the one, the one is what you're about to address around gender. Um, is it possible to know what it is like to be someone of another gender? Um, but then there's some other questions which are related. So one of them is, does Nagel's bat purely illustrate a problem when trying to understand the experience of another species? Or is it a problem 
for understanding the experience of someone of your own species as well. The greater the similarity, the easier it is. You know, so human to human is easier than human to bat. Um, but, you know, within human to human, we've got a lot of variation, you know, so yeah. Yeah, I think it probably does both, but one more than the other. So can we make sense of this idea of saying, you know, I'm in a man's body, um, but I feel somehow that there's a disjunct, that I have a, a gender that's internal to that body that differs from it. Um, yeah. And so in some sense, you know, the term that Nagel uses this idea of qualia, what it is like to be a certain thing. So I might say, well, there's there is a way of being which is to be to be trapped in the wrong body. Can we make sense of that notion? People are confusing big time gender and sex. Sex always has been defined as the, the whole biological thing, whether you go by anatomy or, and I think much, much, much better is to go by chromosomes, you know, XY, XX. And yes, there's intersex. Um, so it's not just two sexes, or we could say that intersex is actually a, an overlap of the two sexes. But that's all there is to say about sex, and we cannot change our chromosomes. Um, we can change the cosmetic anatomy, but you can't change chromosomes, you can't change your sex. And I, I guess there might be some personality consequences of chromosome makeup, but I don't think we've got those really understood very much. Gender is completely the, the social construct, the femininity and the masculinity. And I think the problem is that our society has assumed and proposed relentlessly that gender align with sex. You know, so you cannot be a feminine male. You cannot be a masculine female. And that to me, I mean, that's what's supporting the whole sexism uh, of our society. And that to me is what has to go. I see no problem with a male being feminine. If, if a male wants to wear dresses and makeup and become a florist, I mean, fantastic. And if a woman, a female, wants to become an engineer and play football, then go for it. You don't have to change your sex in order to do all that. So when males say, well, I feel like a woman, well, first of all, I want to know when they use the word woman, are they talking about sex or gender? Are they saying, I feel feminine? Or are they saying, I feel like a female? Now, if they're saying, I feel like a female, well, welcome to Nagel. How can they say they feel like a female? I mean, I can barely say I feel like a female. I have XY chromosomes. I know I am a female because certain parts of my anatomy do certain things. But other than that, I mean, I can't even say I feel, I don't know, fill in the blank because of my estrogen. I mean, maybe it's because of my dopamine or some other thing going on in my body. So if I can't even reliably say I feel female because blah, 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 other than a few really obvious uh, physiological things, how can a male say I feel female and vice versa? Um, so, you know, I challenge them to, to back to answer my question without referring to gender stereotypes. So this seems like a, an incredibly important question, not just for gender, but for critical theory generally. What is it like to be a woman? What is it like to be black? What is it like to be gay? And people who um, support proponents of critical theory, um, they argue that there is something it is like. 
And unless you are of that sex or gender or race, you wouldn't know what that is. Because it seems like there are different moves that could be made. So the one is, as you say, to deny that it is possible for a human being to ever know what it is like to be a bat, because the, the difference is so broad, so out of our experience, that you just cannot do the empathetic exercise. And the other one is to claim, well, no, the difference you're talking about, in other words, to say, I don't know what it's like to be black or to be you know, Chinese or to be a woman. You might say, well, those are not the sort of features that are analogous to being a bat. And we very much can do an, an empathy exercise and we can put ourselves in the shoes of that person. Or you say, well, maybe it's even more specific than that. Maybe I don't know what it is to be a Jason. All that I can know is what it is to be a Mark. Um, and that any kind of stepping out of yourself is just an impossibility. Right, but you both can say what it is to be a human, and you can both say what it is to be male to some extent. You might not be able to know what elements of yourself are due to maleness and what are due to just general humanness and what are due to your unique Jason and Markness. Through my observation of the world, I might say, well, let's say people that are different from me in some particular trait display certain external differences. And so I can reason my way into thinking what it would be like from their internal perspective. And that might be what's going on when someone says, well, I think I know what it would be like to be of a different sex or of a different race based on my observations and based on what people have told me about their experience. I feel like that resonates with my experience. So if we think about let's move out of the transgender case, um, someone like Rachel Dolezal understood herself to be black. Um, now she was, let's say, born white, considered herself transracial and um, was accepted for some period of time as black because of the way that she um, physically presented, went to Howard College, being a traditionally black university, um, tried to imbibe as much sort of um, black culture, as much as that term makes any sense in the States. Um, and so you might think, well, she says, well, it was very different from what it was like to be white, and I've now changed my identity sufficiently. I've now got a different internal view of the world. Uh, of course, what's happened with Dolezal is that people reject that. Um, people have described her as a fraud and a liar. It's possible to investigate a culture other than the one you were raised in. Certainly it's possible to understand what opinions, beliefs, preferences of your own are due to your cultural upbringing. Um, and yes, you may choose to reject them and you may choose to embrace the opinions and beliefs of another culture. We have to come back to a definition. What does it mean to be black? What does it mean to be Chinese? Does it mean you've got DNA ancestry of a certain kind and quality and quantity? Or does it mean that you have a certain uh, experience? Um, we, we, we can't really talk about, I think, any of that until we define the terms to begin with. So something that you and I both know a bit about, because we're both fiction writers, is writing from the perspective of someone other than yourself. Writers create radically different characters each time with very different histories and personalities. A, a good example is probably Stephen King. So Stephen King writes very fleshed out characters that appear to be very different from one another. Um, and I, 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 I wouldn't want to say they're reducible to him. I've recently discovered Lionel Shriver, and I would say she is, she is very much like that too. I, I don't read Stephen King, but I, I'm reading every single book Lionel Shriver has written. And yeah, she, she does that too. So it seems to me that 
if at least some people can write characters that are so different from themselves and write a convincing perspective from that character, a, 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 a convincing point of view from that character, it seems we are capable of stepping outside of our own skins into others. Agreed. Agreed. And it takes empathy and understanding and research. Yeah. Yeah. And, and very careful attention and sustained thought. Um, can you write a novel about bats? There's a well-known book called Watership Down about rabbits. rabbits and from yes. the perspective of rabbits, yes? Yeah. I see that you mentioned Lionel Shriver. So she um, came under attack for the sort of idea of writing people that are not her. So there's oh. sort of been this idea that, you know, well, that the writer can inhabit the world of many people and, you know, men can write women and, you know, um, white women can write Chinese people. And there's been a sort of change in the, the mores to say, no, you should only write your own experience because there's something like a cultural appropriation going on when you write the experience of others. And so Shriver uh, gave a, a public talk about this, saying that she sees that as her role to be able to inhabit people that are fundamentally different from her. Um, you know, and in one of her most famous books, um, we need to talk about Kevin, um, you know, she's inhabiting the mind of a teenage boy who's, you know, a psychopathic killer. Uh, and she wants to say, I'm, I'm not like that at all. Um, and she thought this sort of policing that's going on in the literary community of saying, well, you can't write people that are of a different race because that's somehow racist. It's very dangerous. But what I like about this discussion is there's a sense of saying, well, there's a fact of the matter about how much we can project ourselves, our internal states into the minds of others and how much we can imagine their world. And then there's some sort of normative claim about whether we should do that because you end up representing someone else. And then how this plays out uh, in the physical world, in the non-literary space of, in other words, someone who says, well, I've sufficiently put my head into someone of a different race or a different sex that I now am that person. And so I, I like that parallel discussion. But I, I want to move on to something else. So this idea of using philosophy and fiction, something that you've done quite successfully, and one of the most uh, famous thought experiments um, is Thompson's Violinist. And I wondered if you could tell us about that experiment and then tell us how you've transformed it into literature. Let me ask you to imagine this. You wake up in the morning and find yourself back to back in bed with an unconscious violinist, a famous unconscious violinist. He has been found to have a fatal kidney ailment, and the Society of Music Lovers has canvassed all the available medical records and found that you alone have the right blood type to help. They therefore kidnapped you, and last night the violinist's circulatory system was plugged into yours so that your kidneys can be used to extract poisons from his blood as well as your own. The director of the hospital now tells you, look, we're sorry that Society of Music Lovers did this to you. We would never have permitted it if we had known. But still, they did it, and the violinist now plugged into you. To unplug you would be to kill him. But never mind, it's only for nine months. By then, he will have recovered from his ailment and can safely be unplugged from you. And then she asks, is it morally incumbent on you to accede to this situation? Thompson is investigating um, essentially the ethics of, of abortion, um, you know, and does, does a person have the right to abort, um, you know, because they're the, the, the fetus is dependent, blah, blah, for nine months. Asking whether the fetus's right to life overrides um, the pregnant person's right to decide what happens in and to her body. And what I like a lot about how Thompson frames it is she 
clearly distinguishes between something being nice or generous and something being morally required. You know, it might be generous of you to say, yes, you can use my body for nine months. You really need it. I get that. But that's a different question than is it morally incumbent upon you? Must Are you morally required um, to do that? So is yeah. there something it's like to be pregnant? Yeah, and, and, and the repercussions and, and, you know, the solutions. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you don't want to be pregnant, you know, uh, are you, I mean, is he justified in disconnecting himself from the violinist? So I'm interested in this idea of being able to translate philosophy into fiction. So, you know, philosophers are engaged in a, a dual exercise. So, you know, we use thought experiments partly as a way of capturing the imagination to give someone some vivid kind of tale um, that we then plug all of the arguments into. And so, you know, at some juncture, you know, Thompson's essay changes from being a tale to becoming, you know, a piece of traditional philosophy where you're, you're raising a series of arguments for a position. But that's very poor fiction. In other words, if you're writing an essay in your fiction, it often, you know, comes across as didactic and, you know, uh, doesn't work well. So this idea of being able to capture a philosophical concept um, while having it meet all the criteria of good fiction must be quite a difficult task. How do you, how do you navigate that, that road? Well, I'm not sure that I know. Um, uh, I initially started writing poetry and short stories, and then uh, so many uh, responses from you know, the magazines and the publishers I sent my work to said, it's too pedantic, it's too didactic. And then I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe I should just be a writer of uh, columns like think pieces instead. And so then I, I did that. Um, but then I thought, no, no, I do want to write fiction and, and this like, you know, I didn't want to just, it, what do you do with, with Thompson's thought experiment if you don't want to just sort of regurgitate it in a blog piece? Um, so I have had mixed reactions. You know, yes, I, I think probably still a lot of people do think my fiction fails uh, exactly for the reason you, you outlined. Um, and it's probably true. I mean, as I, as I mentioned before, I don't know that I have very many characters in me. I don't uh, have a good sense of plot. Um, to me, what happens is not nearly as intriguing as why it happens. So uh, usually I have a great deal of trouble writing a synopsis because nothing happens, <laughs> really. You know, I mean, a lot of people think and a lot of people talk. Um, you know, uh, but on the other hand, I've also had a lot of people respond with surprise. You know, I've never read a novel before where it's almost nothing but dialogue. But my God, it was intriguing. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yes, that's the kind of novel that I want to write. Um, so I'm thinking, why bother trying to, you know, put in the plot what happens because I don't care? And why bother putting in description because I really don't care what color of shirt the person is wearing? You know, why not just get right to this absolutely fascinating and intriguing dialogue. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm a present day Plato. I'm writing dialogues. <laughs> and actually that's what got me toward writing screenplays because with the screenplay, all you have to do is the dialogue. Um, so I don't know if I can answer your question because I guess maybe I fall into the category of not being that kind of fiction writer. So there's a, I think, a continuum um, of philosophical fiction writers, and they they all belong to some point along this continuum where, on the one hand, you're entirely didactic and just trying to get across an argument or a point, 
And on the other on the other side, you're using a philosophical position in a very loose way to generate a plot and certain characters. Um, and different sci-fi authors really deal with this very differently. So, for example, Robert Heinlein, uh, he seems to switch between those two modes. So he has these long tracts of dialogue about political philosophy uh, on a spaceship uh, on their way to battle some some insects on an alien planet. Uh, so you know you get you get this combination uh, happening in Heinlein, and then you get quite modern uh, day, very successful authors um, who uh, who use certain plot points like uh, the experience machine or the brain in a vat thought experiment uh, in throwaway lines uh, in dialogue, which have become so popular now in modern day sci-fi that readers kind of know what they're referring to without giving the whole thought experiment. So they use them almost like a plot device um, without really expounding the philosophical implications. So there's all sorts of ways of dealing with this. In my own science fiction, I, I'm more on the, the loose side of the thought experiment. So I don't talk about the thought experiment itself very much at all, but I try to show it through the story, not through dialogue, but just through events and raise questions that way. And there's advantages and disadvantages. The advantage is that it's perhaps more entertaining for people who are used to kind of a more Hollywood-esque kind of style of storytelling. But on the other, on the other side, it's less uh, precise and I'm unable to make those clear um, pr propositional statements in dialogue that you might be able to. Mm -hmm. I think it also probably depends on what you're considering your audience to be. Um, I think that for better or worse, I guess I'm, I'm writing more for the non-specialist for whom you know that throwaway line would be missed. You know, if I make a reference to a brain in the vat, I think most of the people who read my stuff wouldn't know what I'm talking about. Um, so I think probably it also depends, you know, who who you are writing for. I wish that I wrote for people who would get that, and I think I know personally why I don't. Um, but yeah, that makes it maybe a little bit more problematic for me because the kind of people I'm writing for. Are exactly the kind of people who might not like just a long, intriguing philosophical discussion. They they want to know what color the shirt is, you know. They want to know what happens. They will get bored if nothing happens. So I'm kind of between a rock and a hard place. I don't know. So there was this very interesting viral moment that was particularly amusing to lawyers like me, which was, uh, you know, a lot of hearings during the pandemic have happened over Zoom, and uh, one of the lawyers had a filter, which his kids had turned on of him as a cat. And, uh, you know, he sort of tried to assure the court that he really was a human being and not a cat. And I thought this was a, a nice little bridging uh, thing to raise because we can think about the transformations we've talked about, you know, uh, with Nagel's bat case. Um, and also you, you've got a thought experiment around uh, abortion and kittens, which I thought would be worth, well worth discussing. Suppose at some future time, a chemical were to be discovered which when injected into the brain of a kitten would cause the kitten to develop into a cat possessing a brain of the sort possessed by humans and consequently into a cat having all the psychological capabilities characteristic of adult humans. Such cats would be able to think, to use language and so on. Now it would surely be morally indefensible in such a situation to ascribe a serious right to life to members of the species Homo sapiens 
without also ascribing it to cats that have undergone such a process of development, there would be no significant moral differences. Sorry, there would be no morally significant differences. Secondly, it would not be seriously wrong to refrain from injecting a newborn kitten with, a, with the special chemical and to kill it instead. The fact that one could initiate a causal process that would transform a kitten into an entity that would eventually possess properties such that anything possessing them ipso facto have, has a serious right to life does not mean that the kitten has a serious right to life even before it has been subjected to the process of injection and transformation. Thirdly, if it is not seriously wrong to refrain from initiating such a causal process, neither is it seriously wrong to interfere with such a process. And there he's getting very much to the heart of the abortion issue. Suppose a kitten is accidentally injected with the chemical. As long as it has not yet developed those properties that in themselves endow something with a right to life, there cannot be anything wrong with interfering with the causal process and preventing the development of the properties in question. So to my mind, it's a very, very clear kind of examination of the, well, presentation of the ethics of abortion. Um, you know, just because the, the embryo, the fertilized egg has the potential to develop into a human does not mean we cannot uh, interrupt the process um, so I think he's making an argument uh, for abortion, though perhaps not all the way through the term, because he says it before they get those properties. So, you know, maybe uh, eight months and 28 days, maybe not, but at, you know, two days, maybe so. Um, so I like that there's that little bit of subtlety uh, in his experiment. I just want to clarify that I understand this thought experiment correctly. So you've got this little cat, and uh, if you give it an injection, it will develop into a larger cat, but that larger cat will have all the capacities, the mental capacities of a human. So it yes. will have uh, human intelligence and human feelings um, and human thoughts and desires and beliefs and aspirations, etc. And the question is, is it wrong to stop someone from from performing that injection? That's one of the questions. And if it's not wrong to interfere, then it seems like it's not wrong to interfere um, in someone's abortion of a human fetus, which would eventually become, again, a larger, a larger creature, but with human uh, thoughts and desires and beliefs and capacities. Is that correct? Yes, I think you've got it. Okay. So we have an interesting guest on the show. We had an interesting guest on the show, uh, David Benatar. And I think he would take a stronger view. He would say, it's not just that it's not morally wrong. It's not just that it's morally permissible to interfere in the production of this human, but perhaps he might say it's morally obligatory to interfere in the production of this human um, because it's better not to have been born. And when a human comes into existence, he thinks a bad thing has happened. Mm -hmm. I have read I, I have read his stuff a very, very long time ago, but yes, he, his name and that argument is familiar to me. 
Well, yeah, he somewhat. calls it the, the pro-death view of abortion, which is that if you are able to stop a being from coming into moral existence, uh, then you ought to do so because it's wrong to bring your life into the world for their sake uh, because uh, life is not worth living. But once you're here, uh, it's pretty bad to die, so you shouldn't kill yourself. Um, yeah. I but, imagine his, his argument is getting a lot more uh, popular as global warming increases. You know, I mean... Uh, we are we are now subjecting to we are when we reproduce now we're subjecting our kids to future horrors a lot of people would argue and i think there's even more than more argument in favor than for for benatar's argument yes although he doesn't make the argument that you shouldn't have kids for the sake of the planet or for the sake of the animals he thinks that might be very well true it might be better for human beings not to come in for their sake but it's bad for the future generations because you know the earth might get worse and you know things will be worth for humanity but there's there's some sense in which i think thought experiments like this might be troublesome in the sense that they are divorced from our ordinary experience of reality. So, you know, the purpose of a thought experiment really is to sort of take our uh, our intuitions and push them a little bit so that we can sort of work out, you know, what is the permissible thing to do in a certain case. And so often we need to have an abstract thing that's a bit different from the thing that we're discussing. So instead of talking about abortion directly, you know, we talk about um, these sorts of other cases like the violinist. And my worry with the cat is that we just don't have those kinds of ordinary intuitions about these these mixed beings that it's quite hard for people to kind of truly imagine what it would be like to have a cat that had all the attributes of a human being person and because they struggle on that front they might think um well i guess it's okay if you don't put the injection in but it's not clear to me that those uh, moves kind of can be translated across the line to the abortion case because people are uh, playing with intuitions in a particular realm. And it sort of strikes me that the good thought experiments um, are able to kind of give us amplifications for our theory because the, the intuitions carry through and some of the more fantastical ones uh, might not be able to do this. Um, I don't know if you think that that's a, that's a fair critique or not. I do, I do, and I think that's uh, that's why I sort of had a question in the margin when he said something like, you know, it would not be a problem to kill the cat, you know, and I mean, right there, I'm thinking, well, I don't know if that's, you know, if that's for sure, um, and I think that's probably because of what you're just saying, you know, it's it's not a it's not a transparent kind of analog. Um, there's stuff that's getting in the way of it succeeding as a thought experiment. I agree. Yeah, it seems like what we want from a thought experiment is a very clear intuition. And we can see an obvious link between that intuition in this case that we're giving to the analog, which is what we want to argue too. So from, from the thought experiment to abortion, for example. Suppose it were like this. People seeds drift about in the air like pollen. And if you open your windows, one may drift in and take root in your carpets or upholstery. You don't want children. So you fix up your windows with fine mesh screens, the very best you can buy. As can happen, however, and on very, very rare occasions does happen, one of the screens is defective and a seed drifts in and takes root. Does the person plant who now develops have a right to the use of your house? My concern with the seed case is that I think people, again, um, just don't have intuitions about babies growing on their carpet. Um, and so they they don't think that there's a problem with hoovering them up 
um, because they just sort of see it as so uh, otherworldly that their ordinary moral intuitions aren't tracking. Um, oh. And, you know, I, I, I can sort of imagine it might be that there's a vividness case that needs to be brought out um, that you, you know, if you grew up in a world where that's how all human beings, you know, came into existence was through spouting through the carpet, you know, and that you, you saw your brother and sister come up in that way and you had, you know, a sense of joy and excitement, you know, as they would sort of develop through the carpet, you, you'd have all the intuitions around that. Whereas, you know, we look at that and we just go, oh yeah, sure. Bring the vacuum cleaner. That just looks, you know, it doesn't look like the kind of, human beings that we're talking about so the intuitions don't carry over uh, and that's what worries me about it ah oh, interesting see i i the, the screen was contraceptive no problem and a tear in the screen yeah contraceptive doesn't work you know pinhole in the uh in the in the butcher thingy <laughs> you know or whatever and then taking root in your carpets i mean taking root in my uterus i had no problem with the transfer of this one at all you know, you can fix up your windows with fine mesh screens. Yeah, you get the best contraceptive you can. Maybe you use a condom and, um, you know, spermicide and maybe a, a cap. I mean, yeah, no, I had no problem with it at all. One of the screens is defective. I mean, come on, you know, defective condoms. Yeah, to me, this is just beautifully transparent. All of those things work fine as analogies. Uh, it just when it's the thing that she wants you to accept is that it's okay to take the vacuum cleaner up and end the life of the the child developing on, on the carpet. And that's the bit where I think it breaks down. Uh, because I, th I think in other words, uh, it's just it's so out of our ordinary experience that you know, our intuitions there, just we haven't developed them. Um, well, I don't think it is. I, I mean, vacuuming the carpet, abortion is often a vacuum procedure. I mean, I don't think it can get much, much better than that. <laughs> So something that's very interesting listening to the two of you argue about this is that it's not like there is some sort of um, clear-cut scientific tool that we can use to measure the similarity between a thought experiment and the issue at question. It doesn't seem like there's a clear-cut way of answering this question in favor of you or Mark about how, what the distance is between the analog and the thought experiment? Well, I wonder if it just depends on background and experience. Perhaps as a female whose body has for decades been at risk of a people seed taking root in my body, my carpet, my upholstery, because of a defective screen, uh, despite buying the very best that I can, like it's maybe maybe males don't think like that because their experience of it is not at all like that but to me as a female this nails my experience perfectly so you give another case which i think is really interesting which is we can quite easily imagine so i'll spell it out um the idea that at the moment one has to opt into contraceptives. So in other words, one makes an active choice to go to a gynecologist and let's say be fitted with an intrauterine device that you can't fall pregnant. And the experiment that you detail in the book is what if that were reversed? What if it was the case that as soon as it became possible for someone to give birth, they were automatically fitted um, with an IUD and then at their election uh, could have it removed? and what effect that that would have uh, on the world. And so you would, you would never really have an accidental pregnancy in that situation because someone is always 
opting in actively to the idea of choosing to have a child. I'm very much in agreement with Batten that if we were to change the default mode, you know, now you have to do something in order to not uh, reproduce. What if it were that you had to do something in order to reproduce? Uh, I agree with her prediction very much that that would probably reduce a lot of unwanted uh, reproduction. And I mean, the statistics show, I think, that well over half of um, reproduction events, I'm going to say that rather than pregnancy, because I want to put the onus as much on the male, um, more than half are, are unwanted. And to me, that's horrible. <laughs> um, so I think this reversing the default mode, uh, I wish we had a medically safe way to do this. Um, I, I don't imagine it would be an IUD, um, but yeah, no. So I, I like that one very much just because of the importance of, of the, the issue. But I'm not convinced if I, had to re if I had to write the book again, I'm not sure I would include it as a thought experiment per se. Um, well, we can imagine a sort of dystopian version of it, which is let's say that the state fitted you with one of these and that you then had to apply for the right to have a child. Um, and that if you know the state thought that you would be a sufficiently good parent, uh, that then the device could be removed. But if you failed the exam, well, then it would have to remain in. You know, we sort of have a version of this uh, in China, which was they had a, a one-child policy, and if you had further children, you'd, you'd kind of get fined. Um, and then that sort of moved to a, a two-child policy, and I think is now being scrapped. Um, but but how would you feel about that sort of state perfectionist vision of saying, well, we'll no longer have you know, these yeah. awful parents who would abuse their kids or who are drunkards or, you know, um, believe the wrong things or whatever it is, we'll only have the best and the brightest having uh, having kids. Yeah, I mean, it's a danger. Uh, it's something that I address in uh, my collection of uh, essays uh, and anthology. The, I didn't write the essays. I, I edited the anthology. It's called Should Parents Be Licensed, uh, published by Prometheus, uh, maybe even 20 years ago now. Um, but yes, I collected a, a bunch of essays from uh, some very excellent thinkers on on the idea of you know should we should we need to like should we license parents should we require parents to have a license um, and yes several of the authors did mention the um, the awful scenario you described uh, you know an abuse of uh, of of a program it would be horrible I agree but I don't think it's inevitable. Um, I mean, we have many licensing programs, and yes, I guess sometimes our car driving uh, license program gets abused. Uh, we have to license pilots and plumbers. I guess we have to wonder whether it's a risk worth taking. The first episode that Jason and I ever recorded, uh, Brandon Nevat, was about the trolley problem. Um, and uh, you have uh, two excellent uh, train-related thought experiments uh, in your book. Uh, and the first is about a a nuclear train. So the idea is that there is a whole bunch of uh, nuclear energy that is stored on this train, um, and but the train is not uh, very well uh, protected. So you've got thin steel, there aren't many safety rods, and the train is sort of you know ricketing along uh, through suburban areas, uh, you know through industrial areas, and at any moment it's quite easy for it to fall off the tracks and cause uh, a nuclear catastrophe. Um, and the idea is that there would be something uh, immoral uh, about uh, transporting these goods on this train. Um, and you then sort of discuss 
why that that case might be a parallel case for the world we currently find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it basically comes to the heart of our duty to future generations, um, which actually uh, has a weird uh, connection to what we were just talking about with contraception and uh, <laughs> and abortion and everything. Um, yeah, uh, you know, it, what duty do we have to future generations? I'm not sure I have thought about that one long and hard enough to to side on one or the other. Um, but yeah, that that's what that is. Uh, she raises some interesting, uh, it, it was written by uh, both Richard and Val Rootley, and they raise some interesting questions. You know, do we have the obligation to future generations? But they go further, which is really good. How much of an obligation? How far into the future? Um, certainly be no surprise to uh, your listeners or the two of you that she also wonders whether it matters, whether we know the consequences, um, is knowledge of the consequences required in order to establish an obligation, and does that knowledge have to be certain or just of a certain probability? Um, so it's uh, not an easy question to answer. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, at some point I'm thinking, why should I have a duty to future generations when I have very morally, consciously avoided creating a future generation? Because I know that our earth can only sustain so much. Um, yeah, I, I think that's probably where I'm sitting right now. Uh, it's the same kind of attitude that I think to me has developed in giving food aid. Uh, for the longest time, I was pro that kind of thing. If, if the aid, well, not so much just to give the food, but to, but to give uh, aid that would enable them to make their own food, enable people who don't have enough food to have their own food. Then I realized it was far more difficult in terms of distribution um, and all that kind of stuff. But then finally it dawned on me one day and said, you know, I thought, well, it's not like kids just get dropped on you willy nilly by the stork. Um, if you don't have the wherewithal to support a child, then it's your responsibility not to make a child. Why should it be my responsibility at all uh, to care about the child that you have made now or in the future? Do we have obligations to the future versions of yourself? Um, so there's a, a, a writer, I think he has a, a philosophy background, but he has a, a very famous blog called Wait But Why? And um, I think his name is Tim Urban. And he had a TED talk where they asked him to deliver a speech. And he was scheduled to give the speech, I think it was in January or February of the following year. And they asked him halfway through the previous year. And he just couldn't come up with a topic and he didn't write his speech. And it got closer and closer and closer to the deadline. And he didn't know what to talk about. And of course, uh, he talked about procrastination um, at his TED talk. And uh, the way he talked about it was interesting. He said, the problem with procrastination is that you are doing a disservice to your future self. So imagine all, he, 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 what he does is he says, imagine there's all these individuals, one individual for each future day of your life. And this in, each of these individuals is someone you will become, but they're not you right now, they're future individuals. And he says, when you procrastinate, what you do is you make the lives of those individuals worse, which is morally wrong. So he says that procrastinating is causing a harm to a future self 
to make your life better. You don't get, you don't have to do the work today. You can relax and your future self will suffer the burden. And that's a problem, he says. And um, yeah, I, I, I think it's a really cool thought experiment. Yeah, but I don't see it as a problem. I mean, that would, you could make the same argument for, you know, staying fit and healthy and, and not gaining too much weight and a whole bunch of other things. Um, what, what comes to my mind is um, this phrase that I, I hear young people say a lot these days, which just drives me nuts is, I owe it to myself, blah, blah, blah. As if their self and their I are two different people, which is sort of what you're saying, your future self and your present self are two different people. I, I am my past and my future self. Well, that no, I, I shouldn't say that so casually because that goes into a whole bunch of other uh, thought experiments. But if I want to do a disservice to my future self, I think I am entitled to do that. And I don't think there's any moral problem, moral obligation not to do that. Just like there's no moral obligation not to go bungee jumping if I want to do that. So my intuition is different, is that uh, if there's sufficient change between your future self and your current self, that future self is actually not your current self. Um, that there's quite yeah. a lot that could get in the way of that transfer, that continuity. Um, and so if your conception of identity is quite loose um, and, and you think that um, identity doesn't get transferred over time very easily, then you might take a different, you might have a different result in, in your, your decisions about the moral obligations involved. Yeah, I see your point. And actually the more I age, the more I realize that I, I am a different person today you know um there are things that i can't even remember doing um and not because i imbibed <laughs> or, or or whatever uh, i didn't smoke too much uh, it's just i you know time passes and i i don't remember um so yeah there, there's something i i agree there's something to be said for that too by the way that's exactly the kind of case i have in mind peg is the imbibing case so i think that when you have sufficient alcohol or drugs you die and uh, the future self that the, the future person that arises is not uh, identical or continuous with mm -hmm. the, the past self. So let's say today you make a promise and between now and that time you take a drink and, uh, and then that date arrives and you have to fulfill that promise. I think that the person who has to fulfill that promise can feel, uh, can feel some, some justified anger at the original promiser. Um, that it's not them. Hmm. And what about if you make the promise when you are drunk and then don't remember making the promise? Should you be held responsible even though you don't remember making the promise? On my view, no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. See, and I'm thinking on my view, yes, you chose to drink. If you made a promise when you were drunk, you, you, you're still obliged to keep that promise. Am I supposed to know when your promises are sincere and when they're not? Is it my job to monitor your state of mind? As the person who has been promised something. Yes. Yeah, so there definitely, someone is suffering here. Yeah. Uh, either the person who's been promised something and, and it isn't delivered, or it's, it's the person who now has to deliver on the promise, even though they have no recollection of making the promise. Exactly, 
exactly or both yeah it's a nice case around personal identity is you know do we buy that there's the dr jekyll and mr hyde so in other words people who can phase in and out so someone who you know goes on a, an alcoholic binge and is then you know acts in a way that's contrary to their ordinary nature is very abusive and violent and then let's mm -hmm. say reverts back to being you know the the nice dr jekyll um, or is it more akin to the way that Jason cashes it out, which is to say, as soon as you make that transformation, you cease to exist. And really, the, the thing that takes over might look like the original you, the polite version of you, but it is a mere clone, because he thinks that, you know, objects can't sort of phase in and out of reality. Um, and that's why he thinks there's this injustice to this clone, because, you know, um, the state broke down uh, in between. You know, it's obviously a much more radical position than just the, you know, in other words, someone going through a temporary change in personality and, and just deciding whether we can hold the sane version of them accountable for the, you know, the insane uh, person that arose. Though I think it also matters whether whether they are that different person because they consciously, willingly got drunk or whether they got hit by something and suffered a brain injury. Mm. So you might say that the original is guilty of it, uh, creating this new person uh, who behaved abominably and is guilty because they could have foreseen that by behaving in this way, by taking that, that drink, they, they, they would create this person. Mm -hmm. I think so. I, that, that would be where I would be now. You would be guilty of hiring an assassin almost. Oh, that's an interesting way to put it. Well, it might be like, you know, Dr. Frankenstein creates the monster, um, but in order to create the monster, he has to, he has to die, he has to sacrifice himself. Um, and you might think that even though he cannot be held accountable because he has ceased to exist, he is still morally accountable because of the creation that he made. Yeah, I think that, that, describes, uh, that describes a lot of what I believe. The problem is it doesn't resolve the problem of the Dr. Frankenstein who comes back after the creation or appears to come back someone called dr frankenstein comes back uh, and now people want to hold that person responsible um so so dr jekyll comes back and now people want to hold this new dr jekyll responsible for hyde's actions uh can this dr jekyll now turn around and say no but hold on that not not only am i not not hyde but i'm not the original dr jekyll who created hyde either um <laughs> So the last thought experiment that you have in your book uh, really is the thought experiment to end all thought experiments. And it's called, um, Can Bad Men Make Good Brains Do Bad Things? by Michael Patton. It goes as follows. On twin earth, a brain in a vat is at the wheel of a runaway trolley. There are only two options that the brain can take, the right side of the fork in the track or the left side of the fork. There is no way in sight of derailing or stopping the trolley, and the brain is aware of this, for the brain knows trolleys. The brain is causally hooked up to the trolley such that the brain can determine the course which the trolley will take. On the right side of the track, there is a single rail worker, Jones, who will definitely be killed if the brain steers the trolley to the right. If the railman on the right lives, he will go on to kill five men for the sake of killing them, but in doing so will inadvertently save the lives of 30 orphans. One of the five men he will kill is planning to destroy a bridge that the orphans' bus will be crossing later that night. One of the orphans that will be killed would have grown up to become a tyrant who would make good utilitarian men do bad things. Another of the orphans would grow up to become GEM Amscombe, while a third would invent the pop-top can. 
If the brain of the vat chooses the left side of the track, the trolley will definitely hit and kill a railman on the left side of the track, lefty, and will hit and destroy 10 beating hearts in the track that could and would have been transplanted to 10 patients in the local hospital that'll die without heart donors. These are the only hearts available and the brain is aware of this, for the brain knows hearts. If the railman on the left side of the track, he too will kill five men. In fact, the same five the railman on the right would kill. However, lefty will kill the five as an unintended consequence of saving 10 men. He will inadvertently kill the five men, rush the 10 hearts to the local hospital for transplantation. A further result of lefty's act would be that the busload of orphans will be spared. Among the five men killed by lefty are both the man responsible for putting the brain at the, at the controls of the trolley and the author of this example. If the 10 hearts and lefty are killed by the trolley, the 10 prospective heart transplant patients will die and their kidneys will be used to save the lives of 20 kidney transplant patients, one of whom will grow up to cure cancer and one who will grow up to be Hitler. There are other kidneys and dialysis machines available. However, the brain does not know kidneys and this is not a factor. Assume that the brain's choice, whatever it turns out to be, will serve as an example to other brains and vats, and so the effects of the decision will be amplified. Also assume that if the brain chooses the right side of the fork, an unjust war free of war crimes will ensue, while if the brain chooses the left fork, a just war fraught, fraught with war crimes will result. Furthermore, there is an intermittently active Cartesian demon deceiving the brain in such a manner that the brain is never sure if it has been deceived. What should the brain do? <laughs> So this is like uh, those Avengers movies where they take all the superheroes and put them all in one. Oh, I know. It really is the thought experiment to end all thought. I mean, you could build a whole philosophy course around this one, you know? I mean, teasing out all the references and, and even before you get to the actual thought experiment. Yeah, no, I, I just, I just, I found it delightful. I had to end the book with this one. It is, as you say, the thought experiment to end all thought experiments. What should the brain do? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it also might illustrate something important, which is that life is very complicated. And that in a lot of thought experiments, we give the person a choice between two options, especially in, in trolley thought experiments. Um, the person must either flick the switch or not flick the switch or must go to the left track or the right track. And a complaint that non-philosophers often have, and some philosophers too, um, about philosophers who present thought experiments in this way is that they're artificially reducing the number of variables involved. And so it's not a good analog to life, which has so many variables. And uh, this thought experiment does illustrate that. 